0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribbon and today Darrell Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Daniel McCarthy. Dan is well known as the editor of Modern Age, a contributor to The Spectator, as visiting fellow at the Centre for the Study of Statesmanship at the Catholic University of America and currently running the Novak Fellowship Program for Early Career Journalists at the Fund for American Studies. Today, among many other things, no doubt, we're going to be talking about Daryl's new book, American Catholic, The Politics of Faith During the Cold War, just published by Cornell University Press. And we're going to be thinking more generally about broader arguments about the rise of American exceptionalism among Catholics in America. All of that and perhaps some more. Dan, thanks for your time today and welcome to the show. Thanks, Crawford. I'm delighted to join you and Daryl. Well, we're approaching that fabled 100-day deadline in uh, the new president's um, uh, role. After Trump's defeat, what do you think is the current state of American conservatism?
1: Well, I think it's in, um, you know, a sort of uh, fallow period, uh, but it's actually kind of optimistically looking forward to the next several elections. Uh, Certainly in the 2022 midterm elections, there is uh, a fair degree of confidence among conservatives and Republicans that... um, The GOP might retake uh, the House of Representatives and uh, perhaps the Senate as well. And, um, you know, even looking at the outcome of the 2020 election, uh, Democrats lost seats in the House of Representatives and um, they fell short of an absolute majority in the U.S. Senate. And um, this was despite the fact that almost everything was going in favor of uh, Democrats and of sort of progressive ideology uh, in the election. Uh, The fact that you had uh, the COVID crisis, which was doing damage to Donald Trump's um, uh, popularity as well as an economic crisis attendant upon the COVID pandemic, and uh, the media had you know been very uh, critical of Trump for the last four years. And uh, of course, you know while Trump got a very large uh, turnout in, in support of himself, uh, there was an even larger turnout in support of Joe Biden. But even with 80 million voters going to the polls and uh, electing Joe Biden, Uh, it still did not translate into the kind of overwhelming victory for Democrats in Congress that might have been expected. So it seems as if um, that suggests there is a certain limit to how popular the Democrats and progressive ideology are. And the question then becomes, are Republicans able to build upon Donald Trump's successes and uh, avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, were uh, all too uh, predictable under Trump? And uh, become actually a you know a sort of governing power in, in American politics once again, and as far as you know philosophical concerns are involved, it does seem as if Trump has shifted American conservatism's discourse in a nationalist direction that is not going away. The more sort of globalist or classical liberal side of American conservatism is uh, somewhat uh, recessive right now. It's still around, it's still you know making its arguments. But I think you find even some American libertarians are increasingly having to engage to some degree with American nationalism. And I think you see this, for example, uh, with the Acton Institute uh, and (laughs) scholars such as Samuel Gregg, uh, who's uh, their research director. Uh, They're not nationalists, but they are uh, in a kind of friendly discourse now, I think, with uh, American conservatives who have more of a nationalist perspective.
0: Hmm. Well, we'll come back to some of those themes uh, in a moment or two, Dan. Can I ask you, though, first of all, about the relative importance of religion to this discourse? Here in this side of the Atlantic, um, we're, we're, we're very aware in our news media of events like the 6th of January and the potential role of religion in that event, or some of the more recent tragic events that have hit the headlines for, again, um, religious conviction of, of certain kinds of religious perform, performativity, perhaps, uh, are being trotted out as ex- explaining factors. Um, for various kinds of criminal activity. So uh, uh, as you think about the the current and possible future state of American conservatism, how important do you think religion is going to be in all of that?
1: Well, it's complex. And um, American evangelicalism and its uh, right side tends to be much more uh, sort of definitively politically engaged with uh, the Republican Party, with the Donald Trump movement, and with American conservatism. Uh, that compared to American Catholicism, which tends to be rather uh, divided quite evenly as a whole between uh, Democrats and Republicans. Now you do find, uh, you know, just as more church going Protestants tend to be more Republican and conservative leaning, the same thing is true among Catholics. You see a racial divide among Catholics, as you see among other divisions of American Christians, uh, where again, white Catholics are more supportive of Donald Trump, uh, more supportive of the Republican party compared to non-white Catholics. Uh, but, even taking those things into account, the divide among Catholics doesn 't seem to be quite as sharp. Um, you do have a number of Catholic um, uh, intellectuals involved in American nationalism and the American right. Uh, someone like Steve Bannon, for example, stands out and uh, but steve bannon 's relationship with Catholicism is itself quite complex uh, he 's a divorced Catholic big. Uh, have, uh, you know, been only semi-successful. So um, the the religious element, or at least the religious element among Catholics, um, with respect to American nationalism and American conservatism right now, I don't want to say it's attenuated, but it's not, it's not a clear sort of um, dividing line or a clear uh, sort of source of their involvement in uh, the American right.
0: Hmm. Again, from my side of the Atlantic, uh, Dan, it's very striking that people who move towards a position of influence perhaps within American conservatism do often shift in terms of religious affiliation towards Catholicism. I'm thinking for example of J.D. Vance. Um, Do you have any theories as perhaps to to why that might be the case or what that might gesture towards?
1: Yeah, the um, sort of political energy uh, of Christianity on the American right tends to come from Uh, relatively low church church sources, and it tends to come from American evangelical as opposed to certainly mainline Protestantism. And uh, for that matter, uh, you know, it's not even sort of coming from uh, sort of ordinary bread and butter, um, you know, uh, mass um, American Catholicism. However, um, at the intellectual level, you do see uh, many more uh, prominent Catholics and you see many uh, prominent conversions to Catholicism uh, on the American right. And I think that simply has to do with the sort of intellectual framework that American, that Catholicism in general is able to provide and the connections between uh, Catholic thought and, for example, natural law. um, As you have um, sort of people coming from uh, more uh, enthusiastic or or charismatic backgrounds starting to engage, uh, you know, at a more theoretical, legal, intellectual level with uh, politics, I think they find a certain attraction to the natural law tradition. They find a certain uh, attraction to the sort of um, deep articulation of legal and um, sort of other political ideas uh, that you find within the Catholic uh, tradition. Whereas if you wanted to find something like that uh, on the Protestant side, I think you'd have to you know, turn to uh, what are now actually the more mainline uh, Protestant denominations. And, uh, you know, that's going to be difficult for someone on the right to do. Uh, I think, you know, certainly within the Anglo-American world, uh, perhaps if not for Africa, uh, something like Anglicanism, for example, is seen as uh, being nowadays more or less politically left of center. And I think that's uh, generally the case with uh, you know, perhaps Lutheranism as well. Uh, and even perhaps uh, Calvinism is drifting in that direction. But uh, Daryl would, I think, be able to speak to those concerns uh, more uh, <laughs> with, uh, with more authority than I have.
2: Well, that, this would be a way to plug another podcast i'm doing with um two of my colleagues here at um hillsdale Corey moss who's a missouri synod lutheran and uh miles um smith who's an anglican in the uh um acna communion um and these are these are smaller wings and less progressive wings of of um confessional or reformational protestantism but that's not why we're here to talk um I'd like to follow up, though, on that question, Dan, um, with, with regard to natural law, intellectual conservatism, which I, I generally share that argument. I think that's part of the argument of my book, my recent book, and then even the book I did with, on um, called From Billy Graham to Sarah Palin on the um, betrayal of um, evangelicals or the betrayal of conservatism by evangelicals, I think is somewhere in that subtitle that I don't think evangelicals have been all that resonant with the intellectual tradition of the West and therefore also with the way uh, conservatives in the American church have appropriated it. But I am thinking, since I do, I'm fascinated by Roman Catholic uh, world and and the American church. Um, so I, I read Commonweal online and I read America at least for my three free, um, articles a month that I can get away with. Um, and they would, wouldn't they also claim the the Catholic intellectual tradition, but on a much more progressive side of things. And, and that's part of what makes the American church so darn fascinating is that you have the intellectual tradition that can go different ways, and I'm not asking you who's right necessarily, but I am curious of where the, that intellectual tradition stands, if you can have it going in, in seemingly different political, policy, legal directions.
1: Well, I think that's right. If you were to divorce uh, the um, American Catholic Church from uh, from Rome, you would have a church that would look a lot more like a standard mainline uh, left drifting uh, institution. Um, however, because you have this, um, you know, sort of both uh, rather temporally deep, you know, chronologically deep uh, connection with um, you know Christianity and Catholicism as it had existed in the early modern period and the medieval period uh, and so forth, and because you have um, you know a, a church which is still organized around um, a very strictly hierarchical. Uh, you know, sort of magisterial lines uh, in in Rome, um, you have a, a counterbalance to the drift of, you know, what might be considered uh, sort of first world, European, American, uh, long established churches towards um, liberalism. So I think that that's why you have a side of Catholicism that is still uh, very traditionalist and that even though the American church itself Uh, Many of its bishops and uh, publishing organs like, uh, you know, America magazine, as you mentioned, the Jesuit magazine and uh, numbers of others are quite, uh, you know, hard to distinguish in some ways from uh, certain mainline Protestant tendencies, although maybe still slightly more conservative or slightly more traditional or slightly more orthodox. Um, You also have this other element in Catholicism, which American Catholics can access, which is a tradition that is, uh, again, Uh, kind of more hierarchical, more authoritative, more grounded in the traditional, uh, you know, sort of ideas of, um, you know, Western natural law, uh, Augustinian Christianity, and uh, a a counter influence against uh, liberalism and modernity uh, in the 21st
2: century. Um, Well, to follow up on that, too, I mean, one of the discoveries as I was working on this book was the um, the controversy over Americanism in both in Europe, the Vatican, and then in America, which it plays out in the nineteenth century and a mild condemnation of Americanism as a heresy by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in eighteen ninety nine um, I say mild because it I, I do think get the sense in reading some of the histories of the American church that bishops were sort of under some kind of watch or fear that they, that they would violate it and it extends down to um, John Courtney Murray when he's writing about the natural law tradition and the founding in the 1950s where he has to go sort of undercover for a while um, but it but what, what's intriguing about that when you think about conservatism in America and the and the the, the connections to Catholicism is that when Buckley, and others are starting out in the fifties and sort of claiming a a version of American exceptionalism, a kind of American first position that America should fight communism, no matter what um, they can get away with, uh, say by treaties in the UN and whatnot. Um, And in some ways also supporting a Murray kind of reading of the American founding drawing on natural law and Murray wasn't the only one to be doing that. There were, I can't remember the names right now, but one of the, I think the Dean at the uh, law school at Notre Dame, Pat Mannion, I guess was his name. Um, Uh, Clarence Mannion. Clarence Mannion, sorry, was, was making this kind of argument earlier than even uh, I think Murray was. Um, But that was out of favor with the Vatican in the fifties, as the experience of Murray suggests. And even, an early, um, kind of skirmish between National Review and America over, uh, the famous phrase, um, mater si, um, what, well, well, how did that go? Um,
1: Magistrano, yeah.
2: Yes. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> Mer- Buckley and the other conservatives at National Review were actually bad Catholics at the time, in a way, until Vatican II didn't, su- Vatican II didn't necessarily say, yes, we we embraced national review. Of course, it didn't do that. I don't even know how many bishops in Rome knew about uh, national review. But there was a clear change in what Vatican II did with regard to religious freedom and some other matters and opening up to the modern world in ways that you could argue Buckley and others were doing even before Vatican II. So where is this question going? Uh, part, partly, I guess it, it's going to try to figure out um, an ongoing struggle um, among American Catholics over Americanism. I mean, there you have the Newhouse, Weigel, uh, Novak, and George is the, the one left standing holding that tradition out, even though first things – I think still kind of represents it at times, but I'm not sure how much it does. I, I do think National Review does as well. I don't know that it's as, as overtly Roman Catholic as obviously as First Things. But th- I mean, that, that kind of Americanism is in some ways um, at odds with the left side of the church. And even it's very much at odds with the emergence of this integralism that, say, Adrian Vermeule is associated with, but other figures as well. Um, And again, just for intellectual theater, I'm not saying it's merely theater, but for following the arguments, it's really fascinating to follow. So I guess I wonder where to, to bring this this ramble to a to a point of a question. Where is Americanism right now, do you think, among American Catholics?
1: So, to um, kind of sketch uh, the overall trajectory of the uh, forces and ideas that you 've uh, outlined there, um, you know the Roman Catholic Church prior to the twentieth century did not have a long history of engagement with democracy and with republicanism America of course is uh, the United States um, is a republican country um, it does It has you know a First Amendment which prohibits. Uh, religious establishment at the national level. And um, America's tendency, even in the 18th century, you had, you know, very strong religious uh, grassroots elements, but you also had an American elite and an, an American drift towards uh, certainly non-denominationalism, what might be called pluralism, etc. all of which was very alien to the primary Catholic experience uh, up to that point. So the Catholic Church, and of course, the the Protestant, uh, you know, sort of anti-Catholic sentiments uh, that come through in 19th century American history, um, they they focus on this disparity between uh, the Catholic Church's traditions and the Catholic Church's teachings, and the idea of republicanism and the idea of a, you know, uh, a pluralistic kind of government. And uh, the anti-Catholic line is, well, look, the Catholics, you know, they ultimately are sympathetic to monarchy, they You know, they idealize, uh, you know, a sort of Spanish form of of politics that is inherently illiberal. The uh, the Pope himself is a kind of absolute monarch. And, uh, you know, if a Catholic becomes elected, that Catholic is going to be as responsive or more responsive to the Vatican and to uh, basically orders coming from Rome as uh, he or she would be to, uh, you know, voters uh, in, in in America itself. That was, you know, the fear among Protestants in the, you know, in America of the 19th century and even into the mid-20th century in, in some quarters. Um, and it was never quite completely true. You always had American Catholics who, in fact, were quite loyal, good Americans, um, even though they were also good Catholics. And there was, certain, there was a tension there. I'm not saying there wasn't. But at the same time, uh, American Catholics were able to function as good small-r Republicans uh, in a way in which, you know, people who looked purely at a kind of dogmatic picture, whether positively or negatively, about what Rome had said about uh, religious pluralism and and the distance between church and state, uh, they might have been surprised. And so this becomes an issue even in 1960 with the election of John F. Kennedy. He's the first American Catholic to be elected president. And uh, there are questions, especially, you know, among Protestants, as to whether Kennedy is going to be... Um, you know, uh, in some ways subversive of the American system because he's, he's Catholic and he might be listening to Rome. And of course, Kennedy makes it pretty clear in 1960, and then even more clear once he takes office, that in fact, you know, he is uh, an American liberal and not uh, any kind of, you know, sort of uh, Catholic integralist or monarchist or, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, sort of illiberal influence. Um, now, you've brought up the relationship of national review to uh, Americanism and to uh, the Church's teachings. I should say, by the way, Americanism, um, I, I think maybe the easiest way to think of it is, um, you know, as a variant of liberalism. So in the same way that the uh, 19th century Catholic Church um, was critical of liberalism, was also critical of Americanism as a particular form of that. Um, now, as you look into the uh, 20th century, and as you get to Vatican II, you have the Church uh, adjusting what it says about uh, the relationship between Uh, you know, Christianity and the uh, political sphere. You have, uh, you know, a greater um, articulation of an acceptance of pluralism and uh, political democracy and republicanism. And it becomes quite clear that the Catholic Church is not committed to, uh, you know, some sort of royal absolutism Mm -hmm. or other, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, or the confessional state even for that matter. Um, You know, the Catholic Church today, you know, doesn't say that it is uh, trying to reestablish confessional states. So all of those changes are, you know, being articulated in, in Vatican II and surrounding it, and before Vatican II you already had uh, figures like uh, John Courtney Murray who were um, trying to articulate this new sort of balance between uh, Catholic teaching, uh, the authority structure of the church itself, and uh, ideas of republicanism, constitutionalism, and so forth. And this continues to be, um, you know, a, a an area of uh, intellectual development, right? So the question is, as a Christian, and even uh, in particular as a Catholic, what should the relationship between church and state be? And, um, you know, for Protestants, this is still an ongoing question. Uh, and for Catholics, it very much is as well. Um, but this is why, you know, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, someone like uh, Bill Buckley is necessarily being a bad Catholic because he you know, rejects certain statements that may be coming from the Vatican or from uh, cardinals or from American bishops. Uh, because the way in which you know, sort of, uh, the Vatican's magisterium and uh, papal infallibility, when speaking ex cathedra on issues of morals and uh, and you know and dogma, um, the way in which these things actually interact with ordinary politics and ideas about, for example, economic justice and and so forth, um, there's there's room for argument and there's room for debate here. And you know, to the extent that economics can be treated distinctly from questions of faith and morals there is a very wide, uh, you know, open range for Catholics to agree or disagree about things that um, members of the hierarchy might say about economics. So that would be the argument that, you know, and Mm -hmm. it was the argument at the time by Buckley (coughs) and others as to, you know, the freedom of uh, conscience and the freedom of uh, just, uh, you know, uh, American Catholics to adopt economic views that might be somewhat at variance uh, with uh, signals that were coming from Rome. And of course, Rome itself is not trying to dictate a, you know, uh, an extremely articulated economic theory. What it's saying is that there is a connection between morality and economics. Um, but in terms of articulating that, in terms of how you best serve the moral demands of the economy, um, the the Vatican has never claimed to be, you know, an, an expert in terms of economic policy. Rather, it's what it's trying to do is to clarify uh, what moral objectives should be part of any economic policy, including, you know, um, support for the family, making sure. And but even there, when the Vatican talks about um, you know, family economics and the living wage and so forth, the primary focus, although this tends to be lost in 21st century discussions, is really on the idea of breadwinners and on the idea of families that are able to take care of themselves, not families that would be um, supported by uh, a welfare state that kind of turns families into clients. And there is in Catholic political thinking this idea of subsidiarity, which is that um, to the extent possible, the most local unit possible should be uh, you know, responsible for itself and that higher authorities, they should support uh, local authority as opposed to overriding it or coming in to replace it. Um, So there's an enormous amount of complexity here, but I think that's the general sketch of um, kind of how, um, you know, an image of Catholicism in the 19th century as being incompatible with pluralism, with republicanism, with Americanism, and with liberalism um, comes to be seen in the 20th and then 21st centuries as having, you know, a, a more dynamic engagement that, in fact, it had already been taking place in the 19th century, but it was obscured by the way in which uh, these issues were all discussed.
2: <clears throat> One thing you left out of there, and I, I, don't, I want to let Crawford get back, get back in, and I'm not trying, <laughs> trying to give, grill you on this, but you left out in, in, in integralism. And, and it does seem to me the way I read some of the advocates of integralism who are very critical of Americanism in the Buckley Newhouse wing of, of the church, American church. Um, is that they'd like to go back to a pre-Vatican II, um, less pro- pluralist, more top-down sort of um, understanding of Rome or Roman Catholicism. And do you think that's a fair way of, of reading that as a, as a kind of a rejection of a church that became too Americanized?
1: Well, even there, it's complicated. Um, as a sort of first approximation, that is um, fair enough. Uh, however, the integralists would say that they are not uh, at variance with the Vatican now. What they would say is that you know uh, the Catholic Church of today doesn't emphasize the idea of a confessional state the way it had in the past. Uh, but the integralists would claim that there is no real break, so they would take advantage of some of the um, you know ambiguities uh, as to the relationship between traditional church teaching, historical church teaching, and what the church rhetorically says now. And they would reinterpret uh, what's going on. And they would say that, in fact, you can have, uh, you know, if not a confessional state, certainly a movement towards uh, a public role for Christianity and for Catholicism in particular, uh, even in a country like America. And that pluralism and liberalism, uh, these cannot be the foundational principles of a polity. And uh, they, they might be prudential concerns, but that fundamentally, um, you know, a polity just as individuals are, is called to uh, acknowledge, you know, uh, the truth that has been revealed to us by God and to acknowledge the sort of natural law uh, components of um, the combination of uh, what, you know, according to secularists, are very separate domains of faith and politics or of, uh, you know, science and politics and so, uh, science and faith and so forth. So the integralist would not, you know, totally agree with the way you've characterized them, Daryl, although I think that to... Uh, you know, uh, a man in the street—that would be a fair way to understand questions. The other thing that I think integralists would would bring forward is that because the integralists have a very thoroughgoing <laughs> critique of liberalism, they would claim that they are in fact more in line with certain uh, you know ideas coming out of the Vatican even now, uh, rhetorically out of Pope Francis, for example, with respect to economics uh, and to the idea of economic justice than uh, American Catholics like uh, Bill Buckley or you know that uh, you know uh, you know Michael Novak and so forth who are more sort of uh, outspoken defenders of capitalism so again there are it, there, there's a tension there is um, there are ongoing arguments about all of these things and so it's uh, and each side will claim that it has a kind of uh, definitive magisterial precedent for its position uh, either that you know economics is a realm where people can have Um, prudential disagreements, or that, you know, even in economics, there are, in fact, moral teachings that the the church has made very clear have to be followed. The different rival elements in American political Catholicism emphasize different, uh, you know, sort of uh, parts of the Catholic tradition, Catholic teaching uh, in their arguments. So it's an ongoing, uh, ongoing dispute, ongoing controversy.
0: Dan, what do you think the prospects would be for arguments for integralism in, in America?
1: Well, it has, um, you know, a certain uh, appeal at the upper intellectual level um, among lawyers, for example. So Adrian Vermeule is a professor at Harvard Law School. Uh, a number of sort of young, uh, highly intelligent American Catholics, uh, many of them converts, are drawn to integralism. And integralism does, um, you know, whatever else anyone might say about it. It certainly has a, uh, an eye on the flaws of American liberalism and American pluralism. It's able to talk about the tension between any kind of, you know, sort of uh, absolute moral outlook, any kind of biblical morality even, and uh, the idea of liberalism and its tendency towards uh, relativism. So the integralists, you know, they have an appeal. They have a certain uh, elite uh, cadre among around themselves Um, because they're lawyers. They have, uh, you know, potentially the opportunity to, uh, you know, influence administrative law or influence uh, courts. Uh, in terms of creating a mass political movement, uh, there doesn't seem to be really any uh, prospect there for the time being, and it's doubtful that there ever would be. And I think it is interesting to note the difference between John F. Kennedy becoming president in, 20, in sorry, 1960 and uh, Joe Biden, our second you know uh, Catholic American president uh, here in 2020, uh, because clearly the kinds of concerns people had in 1960 about American Catholicism have not only vanished in, in 2020, <laughs> But um, you know, in most respects, or in all respects, uh, Joe Biden is pretty much indistinguishable from a non-Catholic, uh, you know, sort of American liberal of his generation.
0: Yes, for many evangelicals, he's not Catholic enough. Uh, it's one of the great ironies of the last election. But Dan, as, as you think about um, the prospects for integralism, do you see it? Do you see it prompting any kind of mimicking in the Protestant side of things, or? Do you see it being developed around some of the recent appointments to the Supreme Court, for example?
1: Well, the attacks on someone like Amy Coney Barrett uh, tried to portray her uh, as some sort of, if not an integralist, someone who was, you know, broadly sympathetic with the idea of um, bringing not just a, you know, sort of Catholic perspective in a, you know, kind of loose cultural sense, but an actual Catholic understanding of law and politics, and importing that into the Supreme Court, and then using the Supreme Court to impose that on America, and the attacks on Amy Coney Barrett were actually very similar to the attacks we heard uh, on JFK back in the 1960s and on American Catholics uh, in the 19th century. And uh, what we've seen so far indicates that uh, you know those attacks were as un, un uh, you know unfair and uh, you know sort of predicated on you know just as flimsy uh, assumptions. Uh, with respect to Amy Coney Barrett, as they were with respect to JFK and uh, other Catholics in the American tradition. And in fact, Amy Coney Barrett seems to be, uh, you know, in the general tradition of uh, American originalism uh, in terms of legal thought, as opposed to some sort of specifically Catholic version of, uh, you know, sort of natural law thought or, um, uh, or legal theory in general. Um, I'm sorry.
0: What was the other part of the uh, the question there? I was just wondering whether you see or whether you'd anticipate similar kinds of movements in Protestant churches. Oh. Yeah. In fact, you know, I,
1: you could argue that there, that you had a, a sort of energetic um, uh, Protestant integralism on the American right before you had the resurgence of Catholic integralism in the last few years. So, uh, Christian Reconstructionism, for example, uh, with its uh, you know ideas of theonomy. Um, has certain parallels, at least in terms of trying to apply directly, uh, you know, sort of religious principles to politics. Um, Christian Reconstructionism has certain parallels to Integralism. Obviously, one is coming from a Calvinist uh, tradition, one is Catholic. uh, But their general system of, of thought or how they would apply religion to politics Um, has uh, very uh, striking parallels. I should say, by the way, that while integralism uh, is getting a lot of attention right now, it is something that has recurred in American conservative uh, Catholic political thought um, over the decades. So, uh, you know, Daryl had mentioned William F. Buckley Jr., who is, you know, a Catholic, but he's a Catholic who, you know, he was criticized even in his his own lifetime for supposedly having Calvinist economics for being, you know, at variance with uh, church, uh, you know, teachings about... um, economic justice and so forth. Uh, But in addition to Bill Buckley, Bill Buckley's brother-in-law, L. Brent Bozell, Jr., um, was also a a Catholic. Buckley had been a cradle Catholic. Bozell was a a convert to Catholicism at Yale. Uh, Bozell, even though he is the ghostwriter for um, uh, Barry Goldwater's 1960 book, The Conscience of a Conservative, which is a sort of defining statement of American liberal conservatism, um, Bozell himself was actually something of an integralist. And, uh, you know, he was uh, very keen on the idea that Franco's uh, Spain could turn into a more deeply Catholic state. Um, and, uh, you know, Bosell was, 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 you know, sort of had idealized the idea that uh, Ireland could be a very Catholic kind of modern state. And uh, Bozell had a publication called Triumph, a very small magazine, which argued for uh, something kind of similar to uh, what we identify as integralism today. Uh, and argued for applying that to the United States. Um, so there have been these recurrent, you know, again because liberalism itself is a very flawed, you know, sort of overall philosophy, and there are, you know, sort of serious spiritual and other questions that uh, anyone uh, is going to raise about it. Uh, there are always these new openings uh, or recurrent openings for um, these these principled challenges, whether they're coming from, uh, you know, sort of integralists or. Uh, or you know defenders of divine right monarchy or whether they 're coming from reconstructionists or from other directions, and liberalism by its nature has to you know keep trying to contend with uh, these challenges to its very core principles about well about human nature, and clearly there's you know there are thoughts about human nature uh, with respect to liberalism and with respect to um, both Christianity and also the the classical tradition for that matter, and the natural law tradition that are very hard to reconcile with one another
0: mm.
2: by the way, <clears throat> if I can just Uh, plug my own book here for a second but the uh, my favorite chapter of the book in some ways is the uh, chapter where I feature both Bozell and Wills and the different directions they went after the 60s Wills becomes much more of a a liberal type and um, Bozell becomes like a forerunner of the integralist as it were and it's just it's just fascinating to see the way their world sort of collapsed after 68 and um and actually, I actually get a little moved by reading about Wills and what Wills meant to Buckley and Buckley losing Wills as part of, part of the magazine. Um, so, um, I, I'd like to follow up though with a question about nationalism and the church. Um, the way I read Roman Catholic Church history um, and even the Protestant Protestant Church history is that <clears throat> Rome. Opposed uh, national churches and uh, the beginning of the Reformation, as it were, was that with with the creation of the Church of England, um, at least for English speaking Protestants. Uh, but but, you know, you could argue that Luther has a similar kind of effect effect upon German speaking Protestants and even Calvin on French speaking Protestants. Um, <clears throat> um, so part of what though is is true for um american catholics after world war ii especially conservatives is a high view of america and america's role in the world whether you want to call that americanism or american exceptionalism um is is another question but it does seem that that the vatican vatican ii opens up the possibility for national conferences of bishops which is what does happen Around the world, you do see, and the UCCSB, whatever, however, whatever the initials are, um, does form in after Vatican II in ways that it had, had not formed before that. But still, it's a global church. Um, and I think it's, um, fair to say that it's careful about giving too much ground to nationalism. So that then re- goes to the question of the degree to which American Roman Catholics, not 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 to question any kind of sense of patriotism, but whether there is a, a loyalty to a, a universal or global sorts of arrangements and global governing structures by virtue of being Roman Catholic, that is in some ways at odds with an American exceptionalism and America's place in the world after uh, World War II during the Cold War and even Beyond.
1: Well, in some ways, I would say the the, the story is uh, the reverse of what you presented, right? Um, so during the Cold War, uh, the Catholic Church was, if anything, even more concerned about internationalism, in particular international communism, uh, than it was about nationalism. And you know, we can talk both historically and also in terms of doctrine and teaching. But the Church has a complicated relationship both to internationalism and to nationalism. And the Catholic Church itself is, of course, neither a, um, it's, it's not nationalist, of course, it's not a national church, but it's also not, uh, you know, the kind of secular internationalist organization that, uh, you know, the term globalism tends to indicate today or that, you know, any number of other, um, you know, sort of post-World War II international institutions represented. Um, now, you know, historically speaking, um, you know, I, the Catholic Church had a practical concern both in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, about not winding up in the same position that the Orthodox churches wound up in uh, in the East, namely where a church could be overawed by political authority at whatever scale. So the church itself, the Catholic Church, uh, was in charge of the papal states in Italy, central Italy, and uh, it it, it valued its independence, and it wanted to make sure that Italy, first of all, uh, was not going to be overawed by the Holy Roman Empire and by the emperor, which, you know, in the early, you know, in the high Middle Ages was a a, a real possibility. But then later on, as you get to, you know, uh, the modern period in the 19th century, the Catholic Church wants to make sure that it's not being overawed by Italian nationalism and Italian unification. Um, so it would be difficult to take these particular, you know, sort of cases and generalize from them about, you know, sort of what, the ideal relationship is between Catholicism and nationalism and internationalism. And, you know, even in terms of sort of national cultural identity, the story of Catholicism as a universal institution and national identity is complex, right? So, um, you know, you have about 400, 500 years or so of uh, popes who are all Italians and clearly, you know, the Italian dimension of the church uh, is extremely important, uh, you know, up through, uh, the middle of the 20th century. Um, you have a movement within the church, um, you know, in the early modern and medieval periods uh, known as uh, Gallicanism. You have uh, French Catholicism winds up not only being, you know, somewhat uh, culturally distinct, it even has, um, you know, a liturgy that is somewhat different and, uh, you know, uh, in terms of its language relative to uh, what uh, <sighs> the Roman church itself is using. Um, and then, you know, the one of the, Things that the Counter Reformation produces is a more unified um, liturgy and a more unified uh, sort of transnational approach to uh, to Catholicism. But throughout the course of you know fifteen years, two thousand years of uh, of history, the Church's relationship to political power at various scales, uh, not just national and international, but also of course more localized, is um, is complex and it's a it's you know there's. A mixture of prudence and there's a mixture of uh, different degrees of of, sort of dogma, all of which uh, create um, something that's very hard to generalize about. So nationalism as a, you know, as um, a replacement for religious belief is certainly obviously something that the Catholic Church has always been opposed to. Nationalism as something which uh, divides people uh, in ways that make them hostile to one another is something that the Catholic Church and Christianity in general has of course been opposed to. On the other hand, nationalism as something that may be compatible with subsidiarity with the idea that there are, you know, distinct national communities uh, which are responsible for their own, uh, you know, sort of um, prudential political questions, uh, that, is, that is always somewhat compatible with, with um, Catholicism. And in a, an earlier period in the 19th century, when you're still dealing with monarchies who have, uh, you know, ties of, uh, you know, sort of royal blood across borders, And uh, you have not yet at that point had consolidated nation states throughout Europe. Um, The question of of Catholicism's relationship to nationalism, um, you know, Catholicism in in the 19th century was not going to be favorable towards, you know, the anti-clerical nationalist movements that you found in, you know, coming out of Prussia to try to unify Germany. And uh, even in Italy, there was a, you know, a very strongly anti-Vatican current and an anti-clericalist current among uh, the nationalists because precisely they wanted to get rid of these papal states that were you know sort of barring the way to Italian national unification. With respect to France you know it's a complicated story because you know modern French nationalism does begin with the French Revolution which does obviously have you know a very virulent anti-clerical element to it uh, as well as an anti-localist element but over time the relationship between French republicanism and uh, Catholicism Uh, becomes complex. So right now, for example, uh, the leading nationalist in France is Marion Maréchal. She is a Catholic. Um, She's a Catholic, however, who's divorced and who in some ways doesn't fit, you know, perhaps the model of what the ideal Catholic statesman or stateswoman should be. And when she talks about politics, she emphasizes both her Catholicism and her Christianity, but also uh, her nationalism and the fact that um, she does not see French Catholics as being required to be, um, you know, sort of um, extremely punctilious about following uh, any hints or clues that the Vatican uh, may provide about policy. Um, Just as American Catholics like Bill Buckley think that there is a wide open realm for sort of economic prudence, uh, Marianne Marischal similarly thinks that, um, you know, there are political questions where the Vatican and the church in general are just not uh, the authority that has to be followed.
2: Well, that was good. I think uh, we're about out of time uh, on several ends here. Uh, Crawford, did you want to wrap us up?
0: Dan, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. Can you tell us more where we can find out more about your work?
1: Yes. um, One thing that I oversee is the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies, and you can uh, visit tfas.org. To find out more about the Fund for American Studies, and I mentioned the, the Novak Fellowships because those are uh, we have the application season open right now through April 12th. Yeah. and uh, these fellowships provide $35,000 in financial support to early-career journalists, people with less than 10 years of professional experience, to pursue uh, year-long projects of uh, their own choosing. Uh, right now, the program is just for American citizens, uh, you know, because of the complexities about paying uh, people who are not citizens and may not have green cards and so forth. But it is something that, uh, you know, I hope American listeners this podcast uh, will, will check out. And if they are journalists or if they know of early career journalists who are, um, uh, you know, uh, have less than 10 years of experience, that they will encourage them to apply for the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship from the Fund for American Studies. And then beyond that, I am a columnist for the U.S. edition of The Spectator magazine. Uh, I'm in uh, every issue of the print magazine and uh, on a more or less weekly basis on the website. And uh, beyond that, you know, I I freelance uh, quite widely and appear in a number of places. And I edit a journal called Modern Age, which is a quarterly published by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and which is sort of one of the uh, grand old institutions of the American right. It was founded uh, in 1957 by
0: Russell Kirk. Well, that sounds wonderful. Dan, thanks so much for your time today and take care. Thanks.